Well, last week we talked uh, about the bridegroom and we looked at John chapter 2. And to be honest with you, I just couldn't seem to get much further than John chapter 2 this week. So we're having another look at the bridegroom. And I think he's worth looking at. So we're going to have another look at this story and go a little bit further. Uh, But we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to speak to all our hearts. Because I believe that God wants the bride of Christ to know that she's loved. And I believe that God wants the bride of Christ to be free from shame. And so we're going to look particularly at these areas today. And we're going to see maybe a little bit more about the love that the bridegroom has for you, his bride. And let's just remind ourselves of John chapter 2. We're going to read verse uh, verse 1. Uh, it's, I'm going to read just to read this to you in the message, just for a change. It says, Three days later there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' uh, mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. When they started running low on the wine at the, at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, they're just about out of wine. Jesus said, is that any of our business, mother, yours or mine? We know it's a different translation we read last uh, week. We read how he said, woman, what is, that to, what is that to me? And we wondered why he spoke like that. And we looked at how um, it seems that Jesus was preparing and helping to prepare his mother for the change in their relationship that was about to come when he would be having to step out and his first priority was going to be his father's business. But we're not going to go back into that again because we covered that last week. So we see that the the wine had run out and if we look down to uh, verse... um, verse... It might have been better to have stuck to the other one that has the verses in it. Here we are, verse 11... It says in the message, This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign that Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And we saw last week that John has chosen certain miracles and he has named them signs. And they're all signs about the deity of Christ, all about how he was God in flesh. And so uh, we, we see that he, this, this um, miracle that he did was actually a sign. And it was a sign that we saw last week so that the people, we've just read it, so that the people would see his glory, realise he was God, and get a glimpse of his glory, but also that they would believe. And I just wanted to remind you that last week we looked at how this uh, wedding, this first miracle, I don't believe it's, it's a sign and I don't believe it's, it's insignificant that it was a wedding. And it reminds us how the Bible opens up with uh, Adam and Eve. It opens up with God preparing a bride for Adam, taking Eve out of his side and preparing a bride. There's a bride in Genesis at the very beginning of our Bible, and then there's a bride at the very end of our Bible where we see Jesus and the marriage supper, the the wedding feast of the bride of Christ, and how that this seems to be a very big theme running from the beginning of the Bible right through to the very end, where Christ, God wanted to give his son a bride, and he chose us to be that bride for his son. 
And so we're just going to remind you of that and we're going to look on now a little bit further. Uh, in your notes, I've given you a heading. We're going to take a closer look at the background to this wedding. We didn't look at this last week, but I really felt it was important to see what had happened before, uh, before the wedding. Because in all of the Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke and in Mark, they all record the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And yet John doesn't mention either of those things. So Jesus had been baptised and he had been brought into the wilderness to be tempted just prior to this wedding. And so as we take this into account, I'm going to read the rest of this to you and we're going to, we're going to look again at, at what, what the implications are in this story. Verse, uh, Jesus said, Is that any business of ours, mother, yours or mine? But Mary went ahead anyway, telling the servants, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And we looked at that last week, how this is the one command that is recorded that Mary gave. Whatever Jesus says unto you, do that. And then it says, and this is again still in the message. Uh, so Jesus said, Six, stone, six stoneware water pots were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings, and each held 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said, and they did. When the host had tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. And the host called out to the bridegroom, Everybody I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff. But you have saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign that Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So we're going to just look at this, and we're going to see what does this mean. And I'd love you to picture Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she's a guest at this wedding. And we said last week it kind of looks as though it was a family wedding because she was very aware as to the lack of wine. I think if she'd been a guest that was distant from the family, she wouldn't have known that detail. So it looks like it was a family wedding. And it's very clear that Jesus and the disciples were also invited to this wedding. And here's the thing. <clears throat> Jesus had arrived at the wedding, but he had just come from the wilderness. You see, he had been baptised by John. And if you remember, when John baptised him, the heavens opened. And you remember, uh, the, the dove came down, uh, the Holy Spirit came and rested on him. And John recognised that he was the one, he was Messiah, because God had told him, on the one that you see, the Spirit resting, he is the Messiah. And so John had, had seen Jesus, had baptised him, and God the Father had spoken out. Do you remember how he'd spoken out? He said, this is my beloved son. He'd actually spoken, you are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so I wonder, and I know I'm taking a wee bit of license here, but I wonder, was Mary around the day that Jesus was baptised, the day that John uh, put him down into the Jordan and brought him back up again? I wonder, was Mary, was Mary there to hear the affirmation from God the Father saying, this is my beloved son? And you know, if Mary was around and heard that, I'm sure that her heart just leapt with joy. After all the years of being misunderstood, 
After all the years, when, from the moment that she conceived, she knew that tongues would be wagging. She knew that people would be gossiping behind her back. She knew what it was like to be misunderstood. And I wonder this morning, are there some of you here and you feel that you've been misunderstood? That's a very painful thing to endure. And so Mary, if she heard, and certainly if she wasn't there, she would have heard about what happened at the baptism of Jesus. And her heart must have leapt with joy after all these years of people in the community trying to heap shame upon Mary. And I'm sure that shame didn't go away as Jesus grew up and became a man. I'm sure there were still people who were gossiping behind her back. The thrill that she must have felt whenever, whenever God spoke out and said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then, of course, we're told that after his baptism, that Jesus was take, led, and some of the translations says he was actually driven out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And so we know that uh, during those 40 days that he was tempted by the evil one. And it's very, very interesting to me that the first temptation that Satan brought to Jesus was, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Remember that? And how Jesus used the word of God to say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so God, Jesus used the word of God to defeat the enemy. But here's the point. The first temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness was the enemy saying, turn these stones into bread. And of course, Jesus refused to anything, to listen to anything that the enemy says. And that's a good thing for you to remind yourself. When the enemy comes and tempts you and speaks to you, you need to use God's word and you need to defeat him. And don't listen to his lies and don't listen to his temptations. Remember that God's word is truth and he speaks lies. Why would you listen to lies when you've got the truth? And so Jesus doesn't listen to the enemy and he refuses to turn the bread, the stones into bread. But do you know what? When it comes to his own people, when it comes to you and me, he's willing. He's willing to turn water into wine so that we would believe who he is. Satan said, if you're the, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into, into bread. Jesus refused him. But you know what? The reason that he turned the water into wine was so that you would believe that he was the son of God. Because he loved you so much, he was willing to do that for you. So that you might believe. So that he would reveal his glory to you and to me. And then the next heading I have put in your notes is the wedding is not a place for shame. I really want to speak a good bit about shame today because you know what? I am, I am just fed up with the enemy heaping shame on all of us because you know what? Jesus died and paid the price to take shame away from you. It is no place in your life. And this wedding, imagine Mary waiting at the wedding room. Imagine her, you know, involved in, in with the getting things organised and, and knowing what was going on. And then Jesus arrives and he's probably just come directly from the wilderness probably arrived after 40 days of fasting and being tormented by the enemy. 
remember the angels came and ministered to him? And I know my can run, imagination can run a wee bit wild here, but I can imagine him arriving and, you know, 40 days without eating food, he's going to have lost weight. He's going to look drawn and he's going to have, he's come through, uh, uh, he's come through temptation, face to face temptation with the evil one. And I'm sure when Mary saw him, she saw that he was drawn and that he would lost weight. And I'm sure she saw him coming in. And yet, she must have seen the power in him because he had overcome the enemy. He had overcome Satan. Isn't it amazing that Jesus has faced the worst for you and for me? And so he arrives at the wedding. All of the temptation behind him. And he arrives at the wedding and Mary discovers this problem. There's, there's no wine. And she brings the problem. Now, I wrote in your notes here, knowing, Mary, knowing that the lack of wine, the fact that the couple had run out of wine would have been very shameful. And we looked at that last week, how it was, it was culturally a, a huge shame that would have, would have continued and have kind of been like a shadow over the, the, the bride and the groom for the rest of their lives. It was a huge thing in their culture. And we looked at a few, a few quotes on that last week, which we'll not go back over again. But I just felt it was interesting that Jesus, that Mary, who understood all about public shame, was concerned for the shame that the lack of wine would bring onto this couple. And so she went straight to Jesus and she asked him to step into the situation. And you see, the thing is this, Jesus was also sensitive to the needs of the moment because he did the miracle and he turned the water into wine and in that way there was no possibility of shame that was going to rest over this couple. I have a, a weak quote here that I just read this morning from Brian Houston. It says, if you're living under the weight of guilt, of shame or of condemnation, you're not flourishing, you're not ruling and reigning. And scripture tells us that the righteous can reign in life. You can rule and have dominion. But if you're living in shame, you are not ruling, but instead you're being ruled. That's a quote from Brian Houston from Hillsong. You see, the enemy wants to place shame on you. And you know, for many of us, things happen in life and for many of us, we get things wrong and we, we fail and we carry shame. I had a, just a, a, a little uh, text came to me this morning from a friend in Limerick. And here's what, what uh, the quote was that she sent me. Lord, help me to remember that no matter what happens in my life, I belong to you. In life and in death, I am yours. Even when I fail, stray or do stupid things. Even when I forget to pray or read your word, I am still yours. I release my life into your hands and wherever I have held on to my life in order to try and make things happen, I let go of all that. I want you to be in charge from now on. See, I think it's really important that we know that even though we fail and we get it wrong, and listen, let's face it, girls, we all do. We all fail. We all get things wrong. But you know what? Jesus paid the price for your sin and mine on the cross. 
And out of love he took your sin and your shame. That song that Robin Mark uh, sings, all of the verses weren't in that particular version. But one of the verses has been running through my mind this last couple of days. He took my sin and my sorrow. He made it his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and bled alone. I I wanted to, to just substitute that. He took my shame and my sorrow. See, sin equals shame. And we're all, we're all born in sin. And do you know what the enemy wants you to, even after you trust Jesus as your saviour, do you know he wants you to continue to carry shame? And it's not part of who you are. And you shouldn't be carrying it because Jesus took your sin, your shame and your sorrow and he made it his very own. He, he became sin for you and for me so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't it amazing the power of the cross, the power of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. He actually took the sin that we have committed and he bore it in his own body. So that we could be free and made righteous. That he, he did the divine exchange. He took your sin and he, give, he gives you his righteousness. I wonder is there anybody in here today and you've never actually asked Jesus to forgive you and wash you clean from your sin. I wonder is there somebody in here today and, and you've never said Lord Jesus I know I'm not right. I know I can't be close to you because I'm sinful. But I ask you to wash my sin away and thank you you died and paid for it. Would you just come into my heart? You know, it's a simple thing. It's just a simple thing to say, Lord Jesus, will you be my saviour? In fact, the Bible says that if we just call upon his name, he'll answer right away. And it's an amazing thing. It's a transaction just in a moment of time where you pass out of sin and into life. Where you pass out of death and into the resurrected power and life of Jesus Christ. I mean that is the greatest miracle there has to be. And it's all because of what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. And so we look at Isaiah 53 and I've referred to this in your notes. Isaiah 53 he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Are you grieving today? Well do you know what? Jesus knows what it's like to be acquainted with grief. And it says, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Jesus knew what it was like to feel shame from the people that he, that he created, that they actually uh, tried to put shame upon him. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. The creator of the universe came here to this earth and he was despised by the very creatures that he created. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is the one who has taken our sin and her shame. And you know, that's in, you find that in Isaiah 53. And I love the prophet Isaiah. I think he so was in tune with God's heart. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he heard from God. Even hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, God gave Isaiah the, the picture and the words to describe what would happen on the cross when God would send his son. I mean, how amazing is that? That before Jesus came, that his death was recorded and written about in such a graphic way. And then the very next chapter in Isaiah, I tell you, Isaiah was on the ball because the very next chapter, he starts to speak about the bride. And he says, do not fear, 
for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore, for your maker is your husband. I tell you, these are tremendous words for us today. He's speaking, Isaiah was speaking about God's people, initially Israel, but also the bride. You see, God God looked right down the, the, the centuries of time and he gave these words to Isaiah so that you, in your situation today, maybe you're feeling that you're broken. Maybe you feel that there's shame over your life, that bad things have happened. Maybe you're, 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 you're blaming yourself. There's a lot of self-blame in your life. Maybe you're feeling lonely. You're feeling you have no one who really cares for you. Listen, you need to hear me today. You need to hear what God's word says. That if you've trusted Jesus as your saviour, your maker, the creator of this heaven and earth, is your husband. I tell you, a husband is somebody who cares for you, who protects you, who provides for you. He's the best husband it's possible to have. He's my husband. He's your husband if you've trusted Jesus. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. What an amazing thing that the Lord of hosts That means the one who's in charge of all of heaven's army. The one who's in charge of all the forces against evil. The one who's in charge of it all is your husband. The one who loves you and has given his life for you. What an amazing thing that we can say to you today. That Jesus loves you so much that he died to be your bridegroom. So we're going to continue a little bit further. John chapter 2, the sign at the wedding. I'm going to just read these notes to you. The writer of the gospel is clear that this miracle is a sign. So when Jesus asked for six stone water jars to be filled with water, it's good to consider that the number six speaks of less than perfect. The Bible, six is all, in fact, Revelation 13 says that six is the number of a man. Six, six, six. Man, six is a number of less than perfection. It's a, it's a number of humanity. And God wants to give us more than the six. Uh, you see, Jesus took these six water pots. The point is that the old covenant, the law of Moses, was written on stone, just like these stone jars. And the, and the law, this actually, this miracle is actually pinpointing and showing and describing that the law was just like these stone pots and it was less than perfect and it could never bring us to Christ. But the new covenant, the new arrangement that Jesus was bringing, it was going to be perfect. The new covenant is perfect and not written on stone. Remember the commandments were written on stone. But the new covenant, the new arrangement that Jesus came to give was to write it in our hearts, to write his law in our hearts, that instead of having to go through rules and regulations, that there would be a love already written in our hearts, that we would want to love him and want to serve him, and that the Holy Spirit would be in our hearts. I wanted just to read a couple of verses to you of Hebrews 10, verses 14, says this. Hebrews 10 verse 14. Uh, For by one offering he has perfected, it's a perfect offering, perfected forever those who are being set apart. 
the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them and their sins and their, and their, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And so Jesus was doing this miracle, but I just love the depth of scripture. He called, he, he says, fill these six water pots up, stone water pots, six of them speaking of something really representing the water of the law that the water was no, the law was no good to us it could never you could try your best to keep the law but all it did was condemn you because you could never be good enough to belong to jesus to be brought back into the family of god but the new thing jesus was going to turn that water into wine he was going to do the new thing the wine of the gospel the life that Jesus was going to give us wasn't just about keeping laws. It was about knowing the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts, forgiving our sins, and God himself living in us so that his law was actually written on our hearts, not in stone, not in tables of stone, but in our heart. And if you've trusted Jesus as your saviour, there's something that God has put into you. He has put his law in your heart. He has given you a desire that once you trust him as your saviour and you're saved, You'll never be satisfied until you begin to work out his plans and work out his law that's written in your heart. You'll want, you'll want to do it because supernaturally he has planted his law, his will, his purposes into your heart. It's just amazing to look at this and see what Jesus has done. John 1 verse 17, and we looked at this, I think, probably in the first couple of weeks this, this season when we started looking at John's gospel. It says that, that the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so this miracle is really about comparing what Moses did and what Jesus did. And you can see it in the miracle. You can see that Moses, uh, it's actually it's very interesting that if you remember the story of Moses, who remembers the story of Moses changing the waters of the Nile into blood? Put your hand up if you remember that story. Remember the plagues? He changed the waters into blood. That blood, it was like a curse really to turn the water into, into blood. Jesus, his first miracle is not turning water into blood, it's turning water into wine. Do you see the difference? Do you see what's happening? Do you see the comparisons? Do you see the parallels between Moses and Jesus? And of course, Moses was only a servant we read about that in, in Hebrews chapter 3. He was faithful as a servant, but Jesus was the son. Jesus was the son. And it tells us that, the, that when, they brought, when the water was turned into wine, did you notice what happened? The host, the one who was in charge of all the celebrations, when he tasted the wine, he said, hey, there's something gone very strange here. Most times people give the cheap wine first. No, give the good wine first and then the cheap at the end. But he says, what's wrong? This is the opposite way around. You've kept the best to the last. And so Moses came first with the law, but God had kept the best to the last because Jesus was coming, the Son of God was coming, and he was bringing the wine, the wine of his forgiveness, the wine that brings joy and gladness to our hearts to have our sins forgiven. And what a picture between Moses and Jesus. You see... Uh, he had saved the wine to the last. It's very interesting that God always saves the best to the last. Now you need to get that into your head. 
because I know that there's a lot of you who believe that your best days are over. Now, am I wrong or not? Do you know how I know? Because I hear the enemy telling me that. Do you know what? That's a lie. I come against that. Because God always keeps the best to the last. That's a principle. He keeps the best to the last. But you know what the devil does? He tries to shove, he tries to tell you this is the best, and he tries to shove it down your throat at the beginning. And he tries to give you the worst at the last. He tries to bring you into the worst at the last. God saves the best to the last. God loves every one of you, woman. And as I look around your faces, I can tell you that God loves you, that Jesus is your bridegroom, that he died to save you and he died to give you. God always keeps the best to the last, whereas the devil tries to push. I'm reading it out so you'll get it again. He tries to push the so-called best on us at the beginning and lead us into the worst at the end. I have a few verses here and maybe I should just quote them because um, I just think they're interesting. Galatians 4 and 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law. Moses came first. But when the fullness of the time had come, at the last, God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God. God sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. It's in you. It's written in your heart that you belong to God. You've been adopted. And he has supernaturally, the moment you trust him as Savior, supernaturally he has imposed upon your spirit that desire to cry, Abba, Father. You know who you are. You belong to him the moment you trust him as your saviour. Abba, Father, therefore you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of Christ through Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to finish with the... With, well, actually, we'll probably dip back into it again, but sure, that's all right. We're going to move on because Jesus left the, 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 the wedding and he steps out with his, his mother and his disciples and it tells us that they went up to Jerusalem. I'm going to read this again. I'm going to read it in the message. And we're going to read the, the next few verses. When the Passover feast celebrated each spring by the Jews was about to take place, Jesus travelled up to Jerusalem. He found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The lone sharks were also there in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and he chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the lone sharks spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's when the disciples remembered the scripture. The zeal of your house consumes me. But the Jews were upset. That's the Jews in the temple. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? And Jesus answered, tear down this temple and in three days I'll put it back together. They were indignant. It took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days. But Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. Later, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Then they put two and two together and believed both what was written in scripture and what Jesus had said. I've written in your notes, after the wedding, it was Passover time, when Jesus stepped out into his public ministry and travelled up to Jerusalem to enter the temple. As the, son of God, as the Son of God, Jesus was going to check out his father's house 
on earth. But when he got there, he was deeply angered by the greed and godlessness of the Jewish leaders. Multitudes had come up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and this meant buying doves or lambs or other animals for sacrifice. But the holy festival had become a commercial opportunity for the Jews to rob the people. Can you just get a can you get a knife full of it? Can you imagine it? Place teeming with 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 all this business going on and the Jews making money and no place for worship. And so we see that Jesus made a book of cords. I read somewhere this week, it wasn't that Jesus just lost the battle. Remember Jesus never sinned. But Jesus took his time and can you imagine him making, taking the time to make this little whip of cords? He was, he was looking and he was weighing up the situation. He was a real man and he was truly God in flesh. And he takes this whip and he goes round these money changers and he says these words, Take away these things and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And you see, as we read there, the disciples recognizing his authority and realizing afresh that he really was the Messiah, they then quoted a Messianic Old Testament scripture. They quoted Psalm 69, which says, The zeal of your house has eaten me up. You see, the Old Testament is full of Messianic prophecies. Things that Jesus would do. We've already heard how Isaiah described how he would be crucified. But the psalmist had written away in the Old Testament that Messiah would, would be, uh, the zeal for his father's house would be so great that it would consume him. And when the disciples saw him with this whip and saw the, the passion and, the, and the, how, how this zeal and passion for his father's house they remembered that scripture. They remembered that it was a messianic scripture. And it was like another fresh revelation to the disciples. Hey, this really is the Messiah. He's the one that's been prophesied about. It was another revelation to his disciples. <clears throat> and you see, the Jews at the temple, they were not getting these signs. The Jewish leaders in the temple, they were more taken up with business. They just wanted to make a lot of money. They didn't care about worship. They, their hearts weren't after God, and they weren't getting the signs. The disciples got the sign, but they didn't. And they, they then looked to Jesus, and they said, after, he, after, after the disciples had quoted this verse, which was a sign that he was the Messiah, they're saying, tell us a sign. And Jesus then gives them, he says, he said, this, this body, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise again. But do you see how they didn't get that either? They thought he was talking about the, the, the building of the temple. And it had taken 40, was it 43 years or 46 years? 43, 43 um, years, 46 years to build it. So they're looking at it literally. They are missing all the signs. They're not getting it. You know, there's some people who even come to meetings and they listen to the preaching. And they don't get it. They don't get it. You see, it takes the Holy Spirit. I pray the Holy Spirit to open minds and understanding today because it takes the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and give us revelation that we would see the signs. Jesus is working in your life. I want to tell you today that Jesus is doing signs in your life. I'm telling you. He's doing things in your life. He's trying to get your attention. I wonder, are you getting the things that he's doing, are they all going over your, over your head? 
You know, there's so often God's trying to get our attention. And it's like he's doing all these amazing things and we're walking through like a blindfold and we don't actually see it. We're missing the signs of his love. We're missing what he's wanting to say to us. And so we see that, that Jesus, uh, Jesus says to them, this body, and of course he was speaking about how his body would be destroyed on the cross, how he would die, but it would, it would be raised again after three days. And of course afterwards when he did die and rose again, the disciples remembered this. It's very interesting that this particular thing that Jesus said was what they brought against him as a charge against them in Matthew 26. They actually turned it around against them and they said, he, he should be crucified because he, he said that he was the son of God, because he's, he actually said he would rebuild the temple. So they actually used the words of Jesus against him. It shows you the twistedness of the enemy and how he tries to twist things in our minds and in our, in our, in our words. Be very careful of what you speak. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy and speak out twisted lies. Speak out truth. But you see, Jesus knew that he was about to go to the cross. He, this was the beginning of his ministry and he knew that it wouldn't be that long until he would be going to the cross. Why was he going to go to the cross? Because he was going to die for his bride. He was going to go to the cross to suffer and take the sin of the world upon his shoulders so that he would have a bride that God could give Jesus Christ his son, the bride, the bride of Christ, you and me. Now, I'm going to read some of this to you because I want to get through this quickly and it'll just cut through and then we can talk a little bit more. The Jews were God's caretakers of the law and the sacrificial system for all of humanity. Now, you need to know that God, when he first called Abraham in Genesis 12, he told them that he was going to bless Abraham and he was going to bless the Jewish people. He, Father Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was going to bless the Jews. But he also said in Genesis chapter 12 that he was going to bless Abraham and that through Abraham he was going to bless not just the Jews but all of humanity. And so the Gentile nations were included in God's blessing right from the beginning. But the Jews were, they were given custody of looking at, they were the custodians of the law and the sacrificial system. But you see, we've just read here that these leaders were actually, they were actually hindering the worship of the Jews and they were hindering the worship of the Gentiles. Now, I hadn't thought an awful lot about that until this last week or two when I started to look at commentaries and began to read stuff, began to realise that where they were operating, where they were buying and selling and all these loan sharks and, and charging far too much for these offerings, for these poor people were coming up wanting to buy an offering to go up to worship the Lord and they were being robbed blind by these leaders. And you know what I learned this last couple of weeks? The very area that they were doing all this business, do you know where it was? It was in the court of the Gentiles. So not only were the Jewish leaders hindering the Jews from going to worship, but they were actually leaving no place for the Gentiles to go because the Gentiles were only allowed to go into a certain area. It was called the court of the Gentiles because the Gentiles and the Jews, there was a, a, a wall of division. The Gentiles couldn't go any further. They had to go into this particular area and they couldn't get in. 
And this, I believe, was why Jesus was so angry, because not only the Jewish people, but the Gentiles couldn't get to worship. And Jesus was going to go to the cross to die for a Jewish bride, but also for a Gentile bride, because Ephesians tells us that the wall has been broken down. Ephesians 2 says the middle wall that divided us has been broken down, and the bride now is made up of Jew and Gentile. Isn't that just powerful? And no wonder Jesus had this righteous anger because these men were actually blocking the Jews and the Gentiles from coming to worship. You have a saviour who's passionate about you. You have a saviour who fight for you. You have a saviour who give his life for you. And so something to think about, shame, separation from God was one of the results of sin in the Garden of Eden. But God covered the sin and shame of Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal sacrifice. And your bridegroom has given his own life as a sacrifice to cover your shame and bring you close to his side. Your position is not in the outer court. We're all Gentiles. Anybody who isn't a Jew is a Gentile. We're all, I don't think there's any Jews in here today. We're all Gentiles. But you know what? He has broken down the wall between us and himself and we are brought close to his side close to his heart this morning you are his beloved bride this is who you are and i've just written here who wouldn't run after a bridegroom like this i would love to read to you a couple of verses from uh, just the, the song of solomon the first four verses but you know i want you to get this in your head that god loves you so much that he has forgiven your sin he has washed you and he has clothed you with the garments of righteousness we looked at that last week and you know every week that we come here i trust the holy spirit to put together the message and it's amazing how god does that because he gives me the bones of it but it's amazing how, especially even in the morning, coming up to it week on week, it's amazing how different things come along and God puts it all together. And yesterday I was going through uh, the sermon with, with Jane and I was kind of sharing this and about how I really felt God wanted to talk just about shame and, and all of that. And Jane came in to me this morning uh, in the early hours and she says, have you read the, the, the Daily Bread? No. And I says, no. And she says, well, it's the story of the prodigal son. And she says, it's about how the old man ran to get the son so that he wouldn't be shamed. And she started to tell me what was in the notes. And so I, that's why I just added on this wee bit about, if you look in your notes, a wee bit about the prodigal son. Because you see, God the Father doesn't want you to know shame. God the Father. Jesus told this story about the prodigal son because this son had gone out and he had wasted his substance and read his living. He had lost his inheritance. He had lost his inheritance to the Gentiles. And who, put your hand up if you read the UCB notes this morning. Quite a few of you. Well, you know from those notes that if a Jewish boy lost his inheritance to Gentiles, that the, 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 his hometown had the right to do a particular ceremony which was like a ceremony of shame. There's a name for it, I wrote it down somewhere. I don't know where I wrote it, but anyway, there you go. Um, it's a particular name on it. And if the people in the village had seen that boy coming home, they could have gone and done this ceremony of shame over him 
And the, the consequences of that would have meant that he would not have been allowed to come back into the village. He could never come back. He was banned. He was Actually, the, the, the name of this ceremony means cut off, cutting off. And you see, God the Father loves you so much. And Jesus told this story, I believe, to show the heart of his father. Because this old man, do you remember the story? Where it says that he saw the boy a long way away. And what did this old man do? He did what was unheard of. He pulled up the clothes, his clothes, and he said, I'm going to pull mine up too. I have, I have. And this old man, this old, old man, shames himself because an old Jewish man should never show his legs. His legs should never, he wore long flowing garments. This old man was prepared to take shame on himself so that he could get to his boy first before any of those ones out of that village could get to him and put shame on him. God the Father runs to the boy and he puts his arms around him. And he says, come, he says, bring him in. Put the best robe on him, not shame. Put the shoes on his feet. Slaves, slaves have no shoes. You read that this morning, didn't you? He says, put the best shoes on his feet. And he says, bring the fatted calf and put the ring of authority in it, the signet ring that gives this boy authority, authority to go out and do business. You see, when you had the signet ring, you could put the seal in and you had the authority of the whole house behind you. This was a son. This, God, this story is so beautiful. And you know, God the Father shows us his heart. And Jesus shows us his heart when we look at this and, and the passion that he had to chase out these moneylenders and these people who were blocking his people from getting to worship because Jesus was going to die for a bride and the bride was going to be composed of Jew and Gentile. And God wants you to know, Jesus wants you to know that you're his beloved bride. So that was okay. That's what Jane brought to me this morning. But you know what? I just love the way God keeps bringing more and more bits and pieces to put the message together because I believe that he knows what you need to hear. And I don't know what you need to hear, but he does. So I trust the Holy Spirit. So Jane up comes again after this and there's another one up her sleeve and she says, do you know what? Did you know what there was in our reading this morning? We're both doing the Bible through the year. And she happened to see what was in the Bible. Ezekiel 16. All about the woman lying in her shame. Picture of, the, picture of you and me. Lying in her own blood, lying in her shame. What did he do? He washes her. And he and read it in the, in, the, in the prayer room. All that he adorns her. He washes her. He adorns her. He makes her beautiful. And he puts the earrings and the jewelry on her. And this is a picture of what Christ has done for you, his bride. He has taken you out of the sin and the shame. And he has washed you clean by the blood of Jesus. And he has dressed you in the most beautiful garments and he has set you on your feet. And he wants you to know who you are. And he wants you to know that shame has no part on you. Gazaza, I think that's how you pronounce that, that ceremony of shame. There's no ceremony of shame over you. God wants you to know that you are his beloved bride. Who wouldn't want to run after a bridegroom like this? Let's just look for a moment as we close to Song of Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, better than the best wine, the love of Jesus for his bride. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, 
your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And so I just have this picture here and it's the bride and the bridegroom. And the bridegroom loves the kisses. She loves the kisses of her bridegroom. And you know, Jesus wants you to know that he wants to kiss you with his word. He wants you to know his love and his tenderness in your life. He wants you to know, and you know what? There's a place where you can just rest in the love of Jesus and know that you're loved and receive that love by faith. And you know, if you just spend some time bathing yourself in that love and just saying, you know what, Lord, I don't know how to run after you, but please, would you draw me? Holy Spirit, would you draw me? You know what? The Holy Spirit can help you to start to want to run after Jesus, to start to be passionate. God wants to stir up passion in your heart. He wants a passionate bride. And if there's anything today that you feel that you've done or you've said or you regret or the enemy is bringing condemnation on you, if there's anything that's depressing you or getting you down, you need to know that Jesus has paid the price for whatever that is. And that because he paid the price, he can wash you clean. And he can dress you. He can put the best robes on you. And, and you need to know that shame has no part over you. And you can walk out of here letting that go. You don't have to continue to carry that stuff from the past. He wants to lift the shame off your shoulders. And he wants to put the best, the best dress upon you. I'd love to read, I know our time's up, but I just, I'd just love to read just the way that he dressed that um, woman uh, in, in Ezekiel chapter 16. So I'm going to just read a couple of verses because I just think it's beautiful. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel on your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You had pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you, says the Lord. I clothed you, I covered you in embroidered cloth. You need to know that your sin and your shame has been covered. The dress of righteousness that we spoke about last week, God has put it on you. If you've trusted Jesus as your saviour, you are dressed in righteousness. You are clothed with riches. You are the king's daughter. And God wants you to know who you are and to walk in that. This morning in the prayer room, just as we finish, we somehow or other this morning, God led us, the Holy Spirit led us this morning, just to look at, at this idea of being clothed and this idea of being without shame. And you know, we actually stood in a circle and we stepped forward into that place where there is no shame. Because that's what Jesus paid. That's the way he wants you to live. That's what he paid for. He died. He took your sin and your shame and your sorrow. And he made it his very own.
we want you to step out. And there was actually a point at the very end where we actually stepped, put it under our feet. And so today, as we get ready just to sing this song, I stand amazed in the, in the presence of Jesus and Nazarene. Remember Nathaniel? We looked at him a few weeks ago. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What do you think, girls? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus, Son of God, came the whole way from heaven. He left the glories of heaven. He left the riches of heaven. And he came right down to earth. And he went to Nazareth. And he came to this wedding. And he came to bless. And he came to show us that his death on the cross supersedes the law. His death on the cross gives us the gift of eternal life and makes us into daughters of the King who are dressed and who are ready to do all that he calls us to do. And you know what? As we allow him to draw us and we run after him, he's going to bring us into all kinds of adventure. You better believe it. If you are alive to this fact that there's no shame over you and that God is for you and with you and got your hand, he wants to run with you and bring you into adventure and all kinds of situations where you can shine as his beautiful bride and show the world what they're missing and show the world what Jesus looks like. This is the call that God has on your life. Father, I pray that you will imprint the truths that you want to imprint in every woman's heart that we might catch and get a glimpse of your eye of love upon us that we might catch your eye lord and realize that you love us individually as your bride and lord that we would just at this moment worship you in spirit and truth and lord that we would give you thanks as we just sing this song i stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Thank you, Lord. Be with us as we continue in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, last night, uh, a few of us were at the Ignite um, group and we were just praying over some people and we were declaring new names over them because as Beth said earlier at the very beginning, God wants to give us a new name. And uh, instead of shame, he has a new name for you. And you know, last night, I was just thinking, last night those people had the, they could have refused that name or they can receive it. And uh, Joy, Joyce just came up to me uh, uh, just a few moments ago and she feels that there's, feels the Lord's revealed to her that there's somebody in here today and something has happened and you've felt away from God and you've been trying your best to get right and by doing, doing it yourself, by your own works, you've been trying to be good or whatever it is. And she just felt that there's somebody to hear, here today. And you need to know that God has already restored you. That God has seen your tears. He's heard your cry. You're already restored. And I feel the word and the new name over you is restored. You are loved and restored. And I feel there's somebody here. You need to receive that. You need to receive that new name. That you're the bride who is restored into the arms of the bridegroom. That you're loved, that he paid the price for you. And he has done it and you don't have to do it. And I feel that's something that just the girls here, Beth as well, have been feeling. That there's somebody here today and that's what you're feeling. You're feeling that you can't get there. And God's saying, but ah, it's done. Just receive that new name. The loved, the one who's restored, the bride of the bridegroom. Amen. Bless you and we'll see you all again next week.